jumping, soaring, and landing over a two-meter bar at the Olympics, Australian high jumper Nicola McDermott simultaneously inspired and lifted a nation's spirit. Today, she joins us on a very special episode of Science Radio. She'll share what it was like representing her country at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, how she plans on achieving the all-time world record, and why high jumping is only second in importance compared to something else. Welcome to Science of the Times Radio. Well, welcome back to another week of Signs of the Times Radio. This week, I have a super special guest with me, probably one of the most special guests we've had in a very long time, and that is Nicola McDermott. Now, Nicola, most Australians will have heard of you by this point, but for those who haven't, I will quickly list off some of your achievements because you are the Oceanian record holder for high jumping at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, you won silver, which was an incredible achievement. You also are a passionate Christian and you have a ministry called Everlasting Crowns. And now you're back in Australia after your exploits overseas. We're super excited to have you back. How are you doing? Uh, Thank you for the introduction, Daniel. Yeah, it's been an incredible season, definitely one that you you work hard for, but for it all to come together like that is just an answer to prayer. And yeah, I'm I'm going well. I'm going really well. Yeah. It's kind of cool that you've been in various places recently, even after the Tokyo Olympics. You were in Germany at one point, in in France as well. Can you just list off some of the places where you've been competing recently? Yeah, yeah. So in athletics, we have something called the Diamond League, which is sort of like the Grand Slam when it comes to athletics. And I had a full schedule of many competitions. So I was first in Lausanne in Switzerland, and then I was in Paris. I then went to Brussels. I finished in Zurich in the Diamond League, and then I did my last competition in Berlin, and that was all within three weeks. So it was quite a busy, busy time after the Olympics for me. Yeah, wow. And it was so soon as well. Hey, are you feeling tired after that fully loaded schedule? I'm actually, like my body and my mind and things, I... I just have so much joy when I'm doing the competitions. It hasn't really felt like the big season it is, but I'm resting now and I'm still hungry to to compete, but I'll have to wait till next year now. Yeah. It's such a cool piece of athleticism that you do, high jumping. I guess I'm really curious to know how you got into that in the first place. Did you always know growing up that you wanted to become a high jumper? Yeah, so my parents tried to get me into just sport in general, and I was I was not good at sport. And I think my mum said at one stage, okay, she's not going to be an athlete, but, you know, we still love her. We'll, we'll do something. <laughs> like, we'll fo- focus on school. And then in year two, we had the school athletics carnival, and I pretty much won all my events. And I got sent to Little Athletics that year. And when I was there, I got introduced to high jump and I just fell in love straight away and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm I'm going to jump two meters one day. I'm going to go to the Olympics. And I just fell in love with it. And yeah, 16 years later, I'm still, still love my sport. Yeah. What was it about high jumping in particular that really sort of appealed to you? I was really tall as a kid. And when I got introduced to high jump, you just do a few steps. 
you jump over this bar and then you land on this mattress. And I said, is this a sport? <laughs> this is perfect. Mm. Um, I think it's mentally challenging. And also it's so short that you just have to do everything perfect. And since I was, I was the perfect fit for it, it just seems like it was created for me. Yeah. It seems like high jumping is, is really technique based. Like you have to time it just correctly. You have to, you know, pace your steps just correctly in order to be able to do the leap at the proper place and that sort of thing. Is, is that the way you'd describe it? Yeah. If you are a few centimeters too close to the high jump bar, you'll miss it. If you have the wrong position where you start, you have to be so accurate in every every aspect of of high jump. So it's it's a very very technical event. Do you literally? How do you measure the steps versus where you actually leap from or where you start? Or does it just sort of as the more you practice it, the more it becomes like a sort of an intuitive thing? Yeah, uh, you have to measure your run up and. Now that I've had the same run-up for the last few years, it's just second nature to me. I watch a lot of videos and I visualize as if I'm high jumping almost every day in the competition season. So with my eyes closed, I can almost every single step exactly, whatever type of track surface, I can do the same thing now. But that's taken so many years to get. As a teenager, it was almost impossible to do the same run-up twice. Wow. Well, just going back to, you know, when you were starting out there with little athletics and stuff, you obviously found that you were quite passionate about high jumping. But at what point did you notice that this could become a bit more serious? Did someone notice that you were really good at it and then encourage you along the way? What was the sort of stepping stone for you? Yeah. So even as an eight-year-old, I I planned out everything and said, yes, this is what I want to focus on. And by 10 years old, I was starting with my coach, Matt Horsnell, who is still my personal coach today, 14 years later, which is quite beautiful. And he spoke life over me and said, you know what? I think you'll be one of the best high jumpers in history. If you stay with me, you know, in 10 years time, I think we can get you jumping two meters. And I really loved that as a long-term thing. He saw value in me, not as who I was at that point, but my potential. And that made it really easy to do some of the harder training rather than comparing uh, myself to other young athletes at the stage because I was never a national champion uh, or the very best in school, but I was committed. And it took 14 years, not 10 years, but we've been able to create history together because we had that long-term aspect and he never stopped believing in me. Yeah. You're mentioning the the two-meter thing. And like looking past at past Olympic winners in, in high jumping, uh, a lot of them were hitting around the two-meter mark. Some of them were just below, some were just above. Is that sort of the holy grail, I guess, of high jumping to hit the two-meter mark? Yeah, you have a Wikipedia page, and it says the two-meter club for women. And as a teenager, I stumbled across it one day. Back when we were allowed, you know, we had to search Wikipedia for things and assignments and <laughs> Australia wasn't on there. And I said, okay, yeah, I want to bring Australia to that. It's hard to describe, but my personal best is two meters and two centimeters. But everybody calls me a two meter jumper because you enter that next realm of not only being able to jump high, but overcome barriers. 
it can be very easy just to stop at two meters and go, I've done something phenomenal. Now I'm going to retire and eat and just enjoy my life now. But to keep on jumping, you're going into that next realm of going after the world record. And every female high jumper wants to be a two meter high jumper. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you were starting to go pro, I guess, with your coach as well, training you, what sort of numbers were you hitting at that point? And I guess because it wasn't two meters straight off the bat, was that like discouraging or were you just motivated to keep breaking your own records? Yeah, so it's it's really been divine, but every single year I've done a personal best and that's never happened in history before when you've seen that type of growth. So when I started with my coach, I think it was 1 meter 40, 1 meter 36 actually to be exact. So it was enjoying the process and realizing high jumpers peak around 30 years old. So I was willing to stay in it throughout my whole 20s with sport. And each year we seem to get that little bit closer. And when you have a big vision and a big dream, you don't mind how long it takes because dreams don't really have expiry dates if you're working towards them every day. I think it was actually when you were at the Commonwealth Games. Can you just talk us through that experience? Because that was in Australia at the time as well. You were on your your home soil. I guess you're not from Queensland. You're originally from from Gosford, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So not quite hometown, but still Mm -hmm. fairly close, close enough, one day's drive. What was it like competing there for you at that moment? That was super special, that competition. That's, that was a competition that changed everything. I, I went there and I knew if I had jumped over 1 meter 90, it was a possibility to maybe get a medal in the Commonwealth Games. And I remember being in the best shape of my life to that day and thinking, yes, I can do this. And it was the first time I'd ever been at a very major competition and not just being there to attend or to, to make it to the Commonwealth Games, I was very motivated to, to medal. And it's, it's a shift in my brain at that point to recognize that I could be on the podium. And my outlook when I was in the competition was I had a bigger goal in mind rather than just attending or participating. And with my family and friends and almost everybody I knew at that point, they all watched on TV that day. And they showed the event and I won the medal and I jumped a personal best of 191, which now is almost a starting height. But back then it it meant the absolute world to me. And I think that that allowed my federation and people around the world to say, maybe she can perform under pressure. So that that is still a very, very special day for me, that one. It seems like around about that time, a lot of stuff was happening in your life because you you also had other stuff that was happening. Now, just tying this back to the Tokyo 2020 games, which we'll just, you will touch on later on, where you made a speech when you professed your faith very publicly and a lot of people were inspired by that. Just coming back to the beginning of that, when was it that you sort of started exploring faith as an option in your life? Was it something that was there from the very beginning? Was it something that you discovered later on? Yeah, the the beginning of my faith really began when I was in year six. It was my first day of school and my parents decided to send me to a Christian school. And in year six, you're the only one starting because everybody starts in year seven in New South Wales. 
and I walked into the school and I, I had experienced a lot of bullying in my time and I was almost six foot even in year six so I was expecting people to treat me as how I'd always been treated and when I walked into the school I just encountered this love from not only the teachers but even the students you know, 11 12 year old students they just loved me and it wasn't because they had to it's because that was in their hearts and it made me jealous and I said how could somebody love me like this? And they say, we love because Jesus loves us. And that day I, I really encountered the love of God that wasn't based on outward appearances, but just because I was there, I was loved. And then throughout my teenage years, I learned more about it whilst attending that school. And I, I got involved in the church after school, which I'm still a part of today. And my relationship with God kept on growing. But I, I think the big turning point really for me was in the start of 2017, I had the decision of to choose sport as my big, big focus or to choose God. And my whole life I realized at that point that sport was coming first and God was second in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I just attached my faith to my sport or attached faith to my own goals in life without fully surrendering my life to whatever God's will was, whether that was pursuing perhaps missions in Africa or going volunteering all my time to a local church and not training. I'd never even considered that because my sport meant too much to me. But when I recognized that sport was never going to satisfy me the way that God had satisfied my heart, I made that decision. And I think from that decision, I've truly experienced the greatest breakthroughs I I could never even have imagined when I was willing to lay down my life for God. Yeah. As an athlete, being a Christian, though, is it rare? Are a lot of your peers, a lot of your competitors that you, you see out there in the field, are they Christian too? In track and field, it's a really beautiful thing that we're so international. We have people from every single country that competes in my sport. There are Christians that compete. Many actually in the highest level, I experience more Christians there than in the lower levels of sport, which is interesting. But yeah, there's been a movement increasing throughout sport, which I'm passionate about, is people, again, there's a lot of Christians in sport that perhaps have put first their own careers over their faith. But there are also a few of us that really do pursue God above everything else. And our sport is just an outward expression of our our love and worship to God. And that's powerful. And we're seeing more and more of that happen in the Olympics and higher. Do you think that's an important thing for an athlete to to have a faith to be grounded in? We had a chat with an athlete. He's a footballer named Todd Brody a while back. He used to play for Sydney FC and like in the Australian youth setup and stuff. He noticed that loneliness and, and the feeling of isolation was really common amongst athletes. In fact, that's why he joined this group called Athletes for Christ. Is that something you're observing amongst these people who are athletes? Loneliness, isolation, those sorts of feelings, you know, being in the limelight, but then not really having anyone there as a support network. Are those common things? Yeah, I think there's even more issues that come with being an athlete we experience people idolizing us to the point where they almost put their worship in us which humans have never been made to to be worshipped 
And then we have people that we could be putting our whole lives on the line to represent them and they don't even recognize our, our efforts. We experience the most extremes in life from the, the luxuries of having millions of people watch us on TV to the next moment people leaving us abandoned in an airport because they forgot to pick us up after a competition and we don't have, we don't have phone numbers or contacts in that foreign city. And I, I think the highs and lows of the sport can not only affect mental health, but every kind of um, facet of life with being away from family and friends and security and comfort. If you don't have that faith that grounds you and makes a firm foundation like a rock, usually it overcomes most people. And I, I think athletes, the, the mentality and the things that happen outside of the sport is probably the hardest part of our job rather than just performing. Can you just sort of describe what your life is like, I guess, for us who are sort of uninitiated? So, obviously, we're talking right after you've just come from a whole bunch of competitions, including the Olympics. What would a yearly cycle look like for you? Is there like a period of months between competing and then back into competitions for a certain block? You just mentioned before we started talking that you're studying at university as well. So, I don't know how you fit all of that in, but... um. What does your life look like on a, on a sort of a, a daily basis, I guess? Yeah, so we have seasons. So usually as an Australian athlete, I'm even separate to my competitors because I have to travel overseas in order to get competition. But usually between the months of May to October, I'm not in the country. I'm usually overseas competing. And then from November to, to April is when I'm in Australia and I have to compete in around February, March, April for a few competitions in order to qualify for the international season from May to October. And when I'm in Australia, I'm surrounded by my community and my friends and my family, but I'm doing very, very hard training sessions. So I'm always tired in Australia. People only see me for about two two weeks of the year where they're you know, I'm able to do normal things like go for walks with people and, and enjoy birthday cake and things. But then the strict training begins. And when I'm overseas, I don't train as hard because the hard work is done, but then I'm competing more. And the competitions require lots of my mindset being fixed on high jump. So I'll be in the most beautiful places and cities in the world but I'm I'm in a hotel in a stadium. That's it. Even before quarantine, <laughs> even before quarantine was a thing. If you saw my passport, you'd say, "Wow!" But um, in the reality, I am very, very well acquainted of just staying in my room all day and knowing how <sighs> to entertain myself. <laughs> how do you balance that, especially when you're overseas? Now, you mentioned things like the fact that you're a part of a church here in Australia. So I'm interested mm-hmm. in, in knowing how that factors in, but also. Just the fact that your your family's so far away. Now, obviously, we're talking in pandemic times as well, which makes it even harder. What's it like juggling all those things for you? Yeah, um, I think it's I've learned over the years now the beautiful seasons of life and just appreciating for each day as it is. I have sport chaplains overseas that I actually live with when I'm overseas in Switzerland. So one of the chaplaincies, Beyond Gold Chaplaincy, and there are family in Switzerland that pretty much adopt me when I'm overseas, which is so yeah. wonderful. 
So while I'm there, it's like living in a church because they're full-time evangelists and things. So that's really helped me have a community overseas when I'm so far away from my home back here. But I think even with people in lockdown at the moment, they've had to deal with being away from friends and family. And we're so used to FaceTime now. We're so used to online church. It's funny that my, my church went on, online while, while I was overseas. So even in the Olympic Village, I, I can stream online and it might look a bit different from if they saw the surroundings. But at the same, it's just a decision and to prioritize the things that are important. Absolutely. And I've read that you actually have European descent, that you have uh, Croatian descent. Now, because it seems like you're in Europe quite a bit, do you feel at home? Like you were born in Australia, obviously, but do you still have any family over there? Like, do you have any family heritage that sort of makes you feel like it's a second home over there? Yeah, my mum's side of the family, they are all in Croatia. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to see them the last few years because it's just so demanding my my sport. But when I'm there and I'm surrounded by other Croatian athletes, we, we talk to each other as if I, I'm talking to someone on the Australian team, which is great. But So can you speak Croatian? No, not at all. But oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the language of food goes a long way. But I, I think, yeah, when I'm in Europe, in a funny way, it almost does feel like my second home now because... Yeah, I, I, I know I've been on the circuit now for so many years that I, I know what it's like to, to be able to thrive in that community. And yeah, it's normal for me now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I just want to hone in on to, to the Olympics because that is the sort of the big story. Now, obviously, for, for all of us who are back here at home while you are away, about to get ready for the Olympics, obviously, I'm not sure if you caught the tail end of it, but you know, a large part of the country went into lockdowns. And it was really interesting to, to hear the conversations on Twitter. People found that the Olympics were a source of hope and inspiration, especially this year because of how we were all stuck at home. Did you feel an extra responsibility going into those Olympics, knowing that there would be so many Australians back home watching you? I just I felt the weight of it. I went off completely from social media for the week because I knew I needed to focus in on executing the competition rather than getting caught up with the Olympic buzz. But I knew on the Olympic finals it was going to be a Saturday night in Australia, and in lockdown that means there's nothing better to do than watch some Aussie athletes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I did. I felt the weight of the nation. So even when I was in my room the Australian athletes were probably there was there was stricter restrictions for us than there were for other countries because mm. we were expected to do a lot more you know when it comes to quarantine and it comes to the, the coronavirus pandemic that was breaking out in our country in lockdowns meanwhile overseas it wasn't as strong because it's summer in the northern hemisphere so i spent most of the time in my room only to go to the dining hall two times a day the other times we just had breakfast in our room and then the the training sessions on the bus, but it was very in and out. So while I was in my room, I would just be I'd just be spending time with God and prayer and just asking for that for my competition that it would be the sign of hope and perhaps an encouragement for every person that was watching 
And by the time I competed on the last day of the competition, I just had so much um, passion in my heart to go, I know I'm not doing this for myself. Like this, there's a lot of people that are going to be impacted from my jumping. So make it, make it a good one. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was like every cell in my body was completely in line for what I needed to do. Yeah. Now, obviously, like one of your big dreams from the very beginning, you were talking about becoming the two meter high jumper. And I'm sure you would have dreamed about the day that you were there at the Olympics. But these Olympics were, were different. I mean, the fir- yeah. firstly, the obvious fact that they were delayed by a year. How did that sort of impact your prep? Even when we were talking about the Olympics last year, there was some uncertainty heading in and then it was obviously delayed. How did that impact you? Yeah, I remember as soon as we got announced that lockdown was happening, it was right before the Olympic trials in 2020. And at that time, I was in personal best shape last year. And rather than complaining, I just I always have this peace that if something happens, all things work for the good of those who love God. So I was like, this is going to work for the best. And my coach said, we need to start training immediately, doing the hard training sessions. Usually this time of year, I've already done my hard training sessions, but we, we knew we needed to ramp it up just in case lockdown happened more in Gosford, more strict, and I wouldn't be allowed to train at all. We just didn't know what we were expecting. So I did some of the hardest training in my entire life, every day, hours and hours and hours of training. And I think that was really helpful for me because I was still able to work towards that big goal of mine. And the Olympics got got postponed, but we knew that we weren't just doing it for one Olympics. It was a process, and we committed to to not only be able to jump two meters, but to to do the best that I possibly could be. Because who knows, maybe there's a world record in me. So we just kept on training with this bigger outlook. And by the end of last year, I was so thankful that it was postponed because I saw that I was in even better shape. And then that allowed me for this year to be, yeah, just to be even more prepared. I think I wouldn't have gotten a medal if it was last year. So I'm actually very thankful that it worked in my favor to be postponed. Wow. What an interesting point and absolutely very cool that maybe it was on God's time, I guess. Were you sort of hitting the two meter mark in training? Like what was the first moment you started hitting that mark and you sort of saw that as a possibility that you could start doing it in in competition was there a particular moment when you knew so this is fun in training my personal best is one meter 86 i've never ever jumped higher in training really yeah yeah so i do high jump only one day a week and that's only for nine months of the year that i actually jump and the reason why we do that is the amount of training i'm doing in a normal week is way way more than what I'm doing when I'm competing and in my head what I love is that my personal best that's my starting height usually for competitions so when I'm in a competition it's purely fake because I can't rely on my training because my training only gets me to the point where I I I know my runner I know how to jump but there's no way of practicing those heights so it was always visualizing in my head and even when I'd take out the, the clothes for washing and my clothesline is two meters tall and I'd sort of look at it and go, oh, yeah, I think I can do this. Right before I jumped the two meters for the first time in April, I'd attempted two meters three times in three competitions. 
and I knew I had the airtime, but it was just executing it in the exact mm. perfect position and the speed and the power. My coach and I have come up with a big system of sort of being able to know what I need to do in order to jump two meters. And we've been hitting all those marks, but by the time it got to April, so it was just, yeah, having the faith to go. All of, all of it is lining up. Now I just need to execute what I've been training for. And then it happened in April. For you, when you're doing a high jump, can you just lead us through the process? You know, we've talked to footballers and they talk about seeing themselves score the goal before they do. What's that like for you just mentally as you're, you're beginning your run? Do you sort of visualize yourself doing it? What's it like? Yeah, so I'm quite renowned for having a notebook in competition and I train six days a week and then I have a seventh day off. And during the week, I one day I've got a, a spare page in my notebook and usually that time is just spent dreaming about, okay, like let's visualize me jumping over two meters or 205 or something. And when I picture it, I've gotten the point now where I can – in my head, every single aspect of the jump and clearing a bar that high, I can picture it. And most people might only be able to picture the first two or three steps and then it's a big blur because the body, it, it, you find it hard to train your mind to be able to do that. So in that time when I'm visualizing, I might just get a picture of my takeoff or my position or something that in my head really helps me remind myself of where I need to be and what I need to do and then I draw it in my notebook and I bring that notebook to competitions and I, I do a, a big rating system as well while I'm jumping but when I look at those photos or those pictures that I've drawn it it sparks something in my memory of oh yeah I need to I need to remember this aspect and it helps me jump there are some really famous images around of you just sitting there in between jumps, just working on your notebook. And then also like the over-the-shoulder shots, seeing the, the doodles that you've done in there <laughs> of the jumps. What did the other athletes think about that? Do they all do something similar for their own record keeping? No, no one's been like me. Um, I'm a little bit different. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, But what I love about high jump is there is no specific way how to jump. Nobody really knows how to do high jump. Some people are fast, some people are strong, some people are powerful, some people are just perfect at getting the right takeoff. There's no uh, formula. And I think that's really freeing for me because there's no formula of how I jump, but when I'm writing things in my notebook, it's quite creative and my coach is very analytical and it just marries together really well that whatever we do, it just it's a system that works for us. And I don't think anybody could really replicate what I do, but that's perfect. <laughs> You're unique. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting you say that. Um, I guess I'm curious, just from your own analysis, what do you see within yourself as your, your strengths? And I guess just having seen how you've improved as well, what, what are some weaknesses that you've improved on? Yeah, um, I think the consistency of being able to jump high in high-pressure situations, I, I have this great mindset when I go into it is like people call the winning mindset. I, I love the jump. It's, it's a real joy for me because I know that 
my value isn't linked in with my, my jumping. Like I'm, I'm valued and my identity is outside of it. So when I'm jumping, I'm doing exactly as I'm training. Most athletes get really caught up in being attached to their performance. So they experience stress and pressure and they make easy mistakes that they never do in training. Meanwhile, in competition, I do everything that I couldn't possibly do in training because I have that bit of stress and pressure. I thrive in it, which has been a very, very big change to what I had as a teenager. And as a high jumper, I think my overall body strength is probably a lot higher than most athletes. I do lots and lots of gym work. So every aspect of all the muscles in my body I sort of have been engineered to be able to be very, very uh, reactive and able to, to jump. Mm. So I think they're my strengths. I, I still need to get a bit faster and a bit more powerful. And I've got a lot of weaknesses still to work on, which is awesome because it means that I can jump higher. <laughs> well, it'll be crazy to see how far you get because you're already hitting two meters. I mean, we've got a lot to look forward to with you as far as the next Olympics goes. I guess just looking at the, the experience of being at the Olympics. Now, you and I are pretty much the same age. We've been growing up with, you know, Athens, Beijing, London, Rio, all these Olympics. One in particular, I guess, is, is the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, which would have been, you know, close to, to where you were. I guess, growing up. Did you ever have the chance to, to go out and, and check it out? And I guess then, if, even if not seeing the Olympics on TV, how did that compare to the experience of arriving there in Tokyo? Yeah, unfortunately, I was, I was a bit young and I didn't go to the Sydney one. I remember watching the Beijing Olympics with mum and dad on the couch and seeing Usain Bolt. And my dad guessing he'd say, you know, the tall one, he's going to win. And then, <laughs> and then he just broke the world record in 2009, which was great. Watching the Olympics, you, I think it's really, really good watching it on the TV because you can really appreciate the performances. When you're there, there's so much going on. There's a lot of activities. There's a lot of media coverage. It's, it's like being at a birthday party, but there the whole time. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of friends. There's a lot of free stuff. <laughs> there's, there's it's it's a bit of a whirlwind. But if you go in with a big vision, it's great. It's it's perfect. If I'm there purely for competition, in a sense, everybody could potentially do a personal best, the best competition of their life, because you have your whole nation supporting you. You have every bit of food you could possibly want in that food buffet. You have physiotherapists. You have the best track and stadiums in the world, the best competitors in the world. You're wearing your Australian kit. Usually it's good weather. Like there are all the factors are just lining up perfectly. And when you keep grounded and you don't get too caught up in all the external things, you can really thrive in an Olympics. Was it weird this time around because there was nobody in the stands? Did that help or, or hinder you, do you think? I love a crowd. So if it was a full stadium, like I do a big clap while I'm jumping. and, um, and <laughs> Rev up the crowd? Yeah, I love it. I love it. So <laughs> this time in the finals, there were a few people in the crowd that were allowed. And that was enough for me. Even if there was nothing, like there was no, no seats filled. I had so much passion in my heart. I didn't need any external 
support. I, I had it all in my heart already. But, yeah, I think for the next Olympics, if it's a full stadium, maybe that's a gold medal instead of a silver. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that would have been the, the extra little bit, hey? Yeah. Now, as you were going through your sort of heats there, can you just talk us through that process? Do you, did you feel very confident going through that? Did you feel focused and determined that the finals was going to be on the cards and even a medal potentially? Yeah, I, I really, I, I felt like I was in a gold medal position. And I th- I now realize that's the mindset that you have to have for everything. So in the finals, I was quite analytical. So every jump, it wasn't, oh, phew, I made it. Okay, maybe I can jump the next one. It was, of course, I'm jumping it. Okay, you, you've jumped it, but you can do this better and get a feel for the surface because in the final in two days' time, you're going to have to have this perfect. So that was really, really good, and I didn't miss one bar in the qualifying, which was great too because I had so much vision for the forward. And I think I'm repeating this a lot, but I had this good vision and this big goal. So this was a stepping stone. This wasn't the, this wasn't the high point. And even if I didn't qualify through to the finals. I, I don't think I'd ever regret having that big vision in mind. Wow. Now, obviously, you're going to say the final there, but were there any other moments that stuck out for you as being part of the Olympic experience where that boosted your confidence or that you felt like you could do this? Yeah. Um, my best friends and family, they all put together like a big video just talking about how much they believe in me and that they've been on the journey for the past 16 years as I've been having these dreams. And I got that video a few days before my qualifying and it really just, that was a very, very big encouragement for me, as well as seeing people that I know and my friends, even from all the different countries that I've grown up with and they were getting medals. And so it was possible. It wasn't this impossible feat. I was seeing people that I'd grown up with that were just the same level as me reaching those those new realms and that was a great encouragement to be in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. Now come come the night before the final which which you qualified for, was there anything different that you were doing just to prep yourself for, for the big moment? And even going into, you know, being there at the final, what was going through your mind? Yeah. I remember that, yeah, that night was a very, very quiet one. All of the people in my apartment were out, so I had Kelsey who was competing in the finals and she got the bronze medal that day and my other two roommates were already leaving. So I could just have the whole place to myself and it, I didn't really have many calls. I just spent time in reflecting um, just what this meant and preparing myself. And just writing down also the doubts that I did have. I remember writing my notebook. I'm like, God, what if it rains? What happens then? (laughs) You know, what happens if my shoes break? Or what happens if I wake up and everything's sore the next day? There was all of these things. And the more time I spent alone in my room, the more I realized those doubts were just so insignificant. They couldn't. The rain's not going to undo 16 years of training. And mm. my shoes had done 10 competitions. The 11th was going to be just as good. And, you know, it gave me time to really, I think, to quiet myself and just see what was 
what was inside my heart and what was inside my mind that was potentially not going to help me and mm. able to, to just to prune, prune the things that need to go so that by the time I was in the stadium, I was ready because everything that you do in secret, every bit that's inside of you, when you're on that platform and you have the, the entire world literally watching you, especially with the camera zoomed up, if there's just the slightest doubt, that's going to show and that can potentially derail everything that you've been doing. So I, I think that was definitely a strength to do that right before the big one. Now you're there on the day at the stadium, it's the final and you're, you're going to go for it. Can you just walk us through what was going through in your mind? You Obviously, you were writing in your notebook as well. Did you say a prayer? Was there anything you did mentally to help yourself prepare for that moment? And then obviously doing the jump. How did you manage to jump so high at that moment? I think all the hard work's done. It, it was already done in the months leading up to it. So nothing that you could do in that moment can undo everything that you've done. And I had this winning mindset that I was going for the gold and not settling. So I'm like, silver wouldn't do, bronze wouldn't do. And that was a really good mindset to have because as soon as I jumped two metres, I was in the bronze medal position. Mm. And you can go, Olympics medal, my first medal at the Olympics, and then just switch off. But, you know, in my head, I've said, like, it's gold. Like, you, you just you have to go for gold. And that really helped me, I think, get over the national record of 202 because the world, the three-time world champion and now Olympic champion, she got over to 202. And it was just so cool because as soon as I saw that she got over 202, I said, you're going to get over 202 today because I had so much passion in my heart. And my high jump is really, it's a gift that's given to me because nobody really knows how I jump this high. I just do. It's just something. <laughs> like We train hard, of course, but everyone trains hard in athletics. I just have this mm. ability to, all the training that I have, I, I can really make it thrive on the highest level. So when I was there, it was, I'd spent so much time, but even if I was alone out there, I wasn't. And I knew that God was with me. And it's almost like worship back to him. Some people sing really well. Some people write amazing sermons and people use what they've given. And I know I've got high jumps. So I even, it was the two meter jump and I knew I was going to get it first attempt. I just knew it. So I'm singing out there. The TV didn't quite catch that, which is good because I'm not, I'm not an Olympic singer, but I was singing out there and, you know, and it got to the chorus and they're like, Nicola McDermott. I'm like, oh man, they're interrupting my song right now. <laughs> and then I just, I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit tell me, Nicola, this isn't interrupting your worship. This is continuing your worship. It just looks different. And I thought, mm. yeah, that's so true because every single part of me is required to get over that bar. It, it's a, it's an all in type of thing. And you know, when you're serving God, you don't do things half-heartedly. You do it with a full heart. So mm. that just made every jump this special thing of, man, I get to jump again for God. Even if mm. I don't make it first attempt, I'm like, wow, I get the privilege of doing this again, like second attempt. So, yeah, look, I don't think I've met any high jumpers quite like me at the moment, but my prayer is that there'll be more of us and <laughs> you just see it as an offering, not as a duty as such. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people really noticed was how enthusiastic and how overjoyed you are with what you're doing. You're just going there with full in, full enthusiasm, full beans, just ready to do it. And that sort of 
really showed when when you had that really famous moment now after you got the silver. It's just interesting that you got the silver because your 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 height that you beat was better than the gold medal from the previous Olympics. Unfortunately, in this case, you know you were just pipped by Maria from from Russia, right? Who who just managed to to get a little bit higher than that, but um, still an incredible achievement nonetheless. What were the emotions that you were feeling as you'd you'd found out that you'd scored a silver medal at the Olympics? Yeah, I see photos of it, and it was a bit of a whirlwind. I can't really put into words just how emotional the whole thing was because I've, I had years leading up to this moment, and I performed better than anybody expected of me. And my last attempt at 204, the bar was on until I landed on the bags, and I hit 202 harder than I hit 204, and it fell off. And so there's this photo of me, and I'm just, like, shocked. And then I fall on the bags because it's like, what? I almost cleared 204. Okay, I knew 202 was there, but what? And then so you have those moments. You really want to attempt 204 again because I think I could get over that, which is just, like that chain, that's that's huge. Like that's so high. And then I got off the bags, and I'd been keeping it all together and keeping my excitement and the pressure and things. And then I just burst into tears. And you have literally at that moment, then it just sort of hit me of how many cameras were around me. I had about sixteen TV cameras in my face. As I'm, but like on wrinkles on every. I didn't even know my face could wrinkle like that, Daniel. Like it was. <laughs> It was, <laughs> and I just hugged all the girls, and it was, I, I felt like I was a toddler. Like, I just, I was like, where, where am I? What am I doing? Like, that, that's crazy. I just want my mum and dad. Like, I, it was, mm. it was just <laughs> this, just this big thing. And then it's, I hugged my coach, and he gave me the Australian flag, and I had this, this speech on my heart, really, about stadium events and things. And I was going, like, if I was a gold medal winner, I was really going to, use that platform to share about it. And then in my head, I'm thinking, is silver good enough to share something like that? I'm like, yeah, you should because it's on your heart. But anyway, and then I could hug Maria and I just said, I'm like, you have earned this gold medal. Like you have done so well. And she's bursting into tears. I'm bursting. Like it's just, it's emotional. It's, it's overwhelming. It's wonderful. <laughs> and then the small crowd that was there are cheering you. And in that moment, I thought, hang on a second, you still need to write down your an- analysis of your jump. So then I'm trying to look through, like, the, my tears, and I'm like, don't get the tears in the ink. Like, just wipe your face off with your Australian flag down and, and then write it all down. And, and then, yeah, we got through to the medal ceremony straight away. The media interviews then happened after that, press conferences, medal ceremony, drug testing. I, I, I can't imagine many other people on earth experiencing just how chaotic something like that can can occur with, with all these emotions within a few hours. At what point did you realize how much it meant to Australians, to your family back home, and in particular to people who had come from faith backgrounds to see someone like you who was so open on the international stage, on international television to millions of people, not be ashamed of, of loving Jesus? Yeah, well, since I already made that decision of God's first, the sport is second, it's actually allowed me to thrive in my sport because I'm not attached. So if my coach says, you need to change, I say thank you for telling me rather than 
do you know how good I am and how hard I've tried? And oh, it's taught me a lot of humility in that. So when I got interviewed by the Australian media, my good friends that are that are believing in Jesus too said, as soon as you mention your faith, they're going to cut you off. Mm. So just keep that in mind. Say it at the start and then just don't talk anymore pretty much about it. But for me, I thought, you know what, I'm going to share what's in my heart. And even if uh, I get cut off, I get to minister to the person that's interviewing me. And my heart's for the one. So even if no one saw me on on the uh, media platform, I was just, I talked to the interviewer that exactly what was on my heart. And I had a message I knew that could move the nation, but even if it only meant moving that one man's heart, I knew it was worth it. So I just talked as if the camera wasn't there and fully expected, because it was a long interview, that it was never going to be shown on, on the Australian TV and I had peace with that. And I'd been off social media and, you know, I, I knew that when I'm jumping, I've got a higher message than any bar that I could clear. I just shared who I am. But my social media, when I went back onto it, had increased 45,000 followers more overnight. <laughs> I, wow. And my, I had a website. Like, I've got a website. I've got Facebook. I got thousands. And I'm not talking like, oh, you know, like thousands and thousands and thousands of messages of encouragement. I mean paragraph messages and letters and things. Unfortunately, I... I still have never been able to read them because my phone just couldn't keep up with it. They're mostly just deleted, which is hard. But the impact, it wasn't really until I went on social media and went, hang on a second. Um, this this, This made it. And then people said they replayed your whole interview like three times on national television. And, yeah, it it just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. Well, it's interesting, so cool and inspiring to see your journey. It seems like pretty shortly after you were done there, you went off to the Diamond League, like you mentioned, and Maria, who was the one who, who actually just managed to just grab that gold medal, snatch it off you, you actually managed to beat her there as well in, in Paris. Was that a sort of a bittersweet moment? Well, not bittersweet. I mean, I guess bittersweet if it could have been at the Olympics, but to know that your self-improvement with high jumping is so great that, you know, we're looking at there's a lot of potential for the next Olympics. Yeah, well, I think if I was just doing high jump for myself, I would have gone home after the Olympics. There was no reason to go to Europe for for more competitions. But I had it on my heart and I said, you know, one day the stadiums will be filled and one day I'll be able to, to share the gospel in these full stadiums and people will be there for a greater purpose than just entertainment. That first competition a few weeks after, uh, only two weeks after the Olympics, we had an entire full stadium in Lausanne, uh, which is the the home of the International Olympic Committee. And, yeah, I had these five competitions with filled stadiums, and it gave me um, so much emotion to go, yeah, this is this is almost the inheritance. And when you jump really, really high and you break world records, you get to have the microphone. And so every day, every time I went there, I was like, God, I'm doing this for you and I'm doing it for the people that I could potentially reach because people like watching me jump because I'm so happy. But that comes from a joy that's from him. It's not from me because 
it was for me, I'm like, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I want to go home. But <laughs> when I think about the, the mandate and calling on my life that could potentially change nations and go, no, you do it for them, um, mm-hmm. you do it for God. And that's giving me a lot of hope, especially because since I won in Paris and Paris is the city of the 2024 Olympics, it was just like this little sign to say, yeah, get ready, gold, the gold's coming. So I'm training with that in mind. Now that you've been there, you've hit the two meters, the thing that you've you dreamed of when you were a little girl, you won a medal at the Olympics. What's the what's the ultimate goal? Yes, I think the two or nine the world record. That's only seven centimeters. Seven is a good number. It's only seven <laughs> centimeters away. And I don't even know what's possible with this body. But I know that there are gonna be a few of us going after that world record and I'd love to be I'd love to be on, on that journey because I'm realizing that my sport is a lot bigger than just me and mm. I'm inspiring a lot of people to, to live out their dreams in that moment. And, yeah, I, I, I think that is a potential. I always said I wanted to be able to jump two metres in any and every circumstance, so in the rain, in a, in a track, in an empty stadium, a full stadium, and I was able to jump two metres five times this year, which was really cool. But... Yeah, that that could be a potential of being able to keep on jumping high and attempting the world record and hopefully winning a few more gold medals in my future. Now, just as we sort of finish up, we mentioned earlier that in 2017, stuff started happening as far as you changed your frame of focus in between God and, and your athletic career. And it was in that time that the idea came up for Everlasting Crowns. Can you just tell us a little bit about this initiative that you you started with your friend and where do you see this initiative going? Yeah, so um, 2017 started the ministry, Everlasting Crowns, and it was based off a scripture that says that we're competing not just for um, crowns here, we're we're competing with eternity in mind and to get an, an everlasting crown. And as an athlete, I just found that Again, we oh, there's a lot of Christians in sport that are basing their sport or their faith for a common goal of just being great. And that's not actually what we're in sport for as Christians. Like we're in sports to be the salt and light. We're, we're in there to, to change nations with a faith and a testimony that people are crying out for. And I started doing Bible studies with my friends. And we've may, managed to do it uh, all over the world, which is great. And it's looking a little bit different now. I think after my university finishes, I can get a little bit more into it as a full-time ministry now. But it's basically just allowing people in sport to have a relationship with Jesus and to disciple like athletes for athletes and connect them to chaplains overseas for support. But training up athletes to be able to share not just their faith, but their, their dreams and their vision. So a bit like my interview of what I did um, on the major stage, a lot of athletes might have that on their heart, but they don't know how to communicate it, or they might be scared to be that bold. And it's just being an encouragement and a reminder and a role model of what faith in sport looks like. So yeah, that's the ministry that we're in, and we've got athletes all over the world that's involved in I'm excited for the development over the next few years of what that will look like and maybe reaching athletes in the grassroots levels and 
even across Australia, I have it on my heart to start equipping believers in every sense that we have athletes in, in churches that are supported, even if they're far from home and a community that just encourages them to be the best that they yeah. can be in faith as well as in sport. Well, Nicola, you definitely are a shining light amongst your your friends, your family, your peers, your competitors there. Um, absolutely incredible stuff that you're doing. You really are a shining light for this country and we're very proud of you. I would just want to affirm you to continue doing what you're doing and we're, we're going to love watching your journey that you're smashing these heights at the age of 24 and then, like you mentioned, 30 seems to be the, the peak and you've already achieved so much just now. I'm so excited to see where it goes from here. Nicola, thank you so much for joining us on Signs of the Times Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.